The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'd like a show of hands. How many people can say of their practice that in every way and every day they're getting better and better? <laughs> okay, then tonight's talk is for, is for everybody who's here. <laughs> One of the problems of the practice is it has ups and downs. The ups we like, we don't like the downs. And sometimes the downs are long. We can have fallow periods that last for a long time. And sometimes it happens that the down periods come when we most need the practice. In other words, when we're suffering an illness, as we're getting older, difficult situations come up in life. And it seems like the practice evaporates. So what can we do to bring back the energy to the practice? What can we do to get some more oomph and direction in the practice? And there are two qualities of mind, or two topics that are relevant here. One is one that has good press in the mindfulness community, and the other one has bad press. Okay. But they're both connected. The one with good press is ardency. If you've ever looked at the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse that forms the basis for mindfulness practice, it talks about three qualities of mind that you bring to the practice. First is mindfulness, the ability to keep something in mind. Alertness, which is knowing what you're doing, knowing the results of what you're doing as they're happening. And then the third one, <clears throat> which I'd like to talk about in more detail, is ardency. The energy you bring to the practice. Now, it doesn't simply mean the amount of energy you bring to the practice, although that is one aspect to it. It comes under the heading of right effort, which is skillful effort that you bring in the practice. And there are many different dimensions to skillful effort. Um, to begin with, there are many kinds of right effort, depending on the situation. Um, the Buddhism, Buddha didn't teach a Johnny one-note kind of practice. So when there are unskillful states arising in the mind, you do what you can to abandon them. When skillful states of mind arise, you try to do what you can to maintain them. In other words, when, met, when concentration arises, you don't just say, oh, here comes concentration, and there it goes, and I've had some insight into arising and passing away. Um, your concentration doesn't get anywhere if that's your attitude. When concentration comes, you have to figure out, what can I do to maintain it? How do I temper the amount of effort and the amount of desire I put into this so that my concentration doesn't get spoiled my, by my desire to keep it going? Um, when unskillful states arise, you have to look at them in such a way to make sure they don't take over the mind and so that more skillful states can come in and take their place. This involves, in some cases, just observing. There are some defilements in the mind or some unskillful states in the mind. All you have to do is look at them and recognize them. I don't want to go there. And that undercuts them. Other times, simply looking at them doesn't do anything. They stare you right in the face and say, make me go away. I'm not going to go away. And then you've got to have other tricks. Um, so that's one aspect of right effort, which is that there are many different kinds of right effort, and you have to figure out which kind of effort is appropriate to the situation right now. Is it just one of observing, or is it an activity that I have to do? What the Buddha says, there are different kinds of fabricating, which may involve breathing in different ways, may involve thinking about the issue in different ways, or may think, involve perceiving the issue in different ways all of which are activities of the will. 
Then comes the, uh, the question of the different amounts of effort. You probably heard the story of the monk who was meditating, doing walking meditation until his feet were bleeding. And he got discouraged. He said, my gosh, I put so much effort into the practice and I still haven't gotten anywhere. Maybe I should disrobe. The Buddha, far away, read the monk's mind and, bang, appeared right in front of him. He said, were you thinking of disrobing just now? <laughs> um, you can imagine what that's like, having a teacher read your mind from the distance. Um, I've asked some people whether they would have liked to have the Buddha do that to them, and some people say yes, and then people shake their head and say no, I'd rather not have him right there. But at any rate, um, it, this is the story about the young monk who, in earlier in his life, when he'd been a layperson, had played the lute. And so the Buddha says, you remember you're playing your lute when the string was too tight? How did it sound? Well, it didn't sound very well. When it was too loose, did it make any sound? It didn't make any sound at all. How about when it was tuned just right? Okay, that's when you can really play. And so in the same way that you tune the amount of effort you can put into the effort, into the practice, at the, at the level of effort that you are capable of right now, and then to that you tune the different other qualities of your practice. In other words, it's like tuning a guitar. First you tune one string and then you tune the other strings to the, that first string and then you can play. So that's the second dimension of right effort, which is the different amounts of effort you put into it. And then the third one has to do with the motivation. If you look at the Buddhist um, uh, definition of right effort, it starts out by that you generate desire in order to to accomplish the right effort. In other words, you have the right attitude to this. You have to actually want to do this. So there's an element of will in the practice. This is where desire, instead of being a bad side of the practice, is actually something very helpful. Now, both in figuring out how you have to make changes in the present moment and generating the desire to do that, that requires an act of the will. It requires a certain attitude towards the practice. It requires a certain frame of mind, a narrative that you're bringing to the practice. What the practice is doing in your life, what kind of life you have around the practice, how much the practice means to you in, in, in terms of how you view your life as a whole. This is where the narrative of your life comes in. The narrative, of course, is based on your values, what's important in life, what's not important in life. And this, in turn, is related to not only your story about your life, but also the stories of other people that you're bringing to apply to your life. Who, whose life are you basically trying to pattern your life on? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Um, when I was in my last year of college, someone raised the question of, after all the reading you've done all these years, um, asked the students in general, it wasn't just me, um, who are your heroes? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I said, gosh, all these four years have I read anybody who I really admire? And I realized I admired Henry David Thoreau. Um, and I was looking at the general direction of my life at that time, and I said, man, I'm heading in the wrong direction. If this guy is my hero, I've got to do something else. This is how I ended up with the way I am. <clears throat> but you have to ask yourself, what pattern of life are you patterning your story on? Because this is going to determine the narrative you're bringing to your life as to what's important, what's not important, and then how the practice fits into that particular pattern. So meditating is not just a matter of observing. There are other times when you actually have to put an element of will, an element of desire into it. This is what shapes, is shaped by the narrative of your life. This relates, I don't know if you've ever read James, uh, William James on the topic of belief, but he talks about there are two kinds of truth. There's the truths of the observer which um, if you bring the element of your will in to try to figure out 
these kinds of truths that actually gets in the way. Things like trying to run a scientific experiment, learning about the way atoms behave, learning about the way stars behave. If you want your thesis to be proved, or you have a hypothesis and you want, want it to be proved, you start fudging the data. In that case, your will is actually getting in the way. But then there are other kinds of truths that depend on your will. If you want to be a pianist, you have to want to be a pianist in order to put in all the hours to practice. If you simply observe yourself without any desire, you're not going to become a pianist. You have to have a desire to do this. So there's this element of will that comes in in some of the aspects of the practice. You have to take both sides into consideration. On one side, you're being an observer, but on the other side, you've got to push reality in the direction you want it. In other words, it's not going to, and other, otherwise, it's not going to happen. There's a general caricature that goes around where the Vipassana practice is just on the observing side. <clears throat> and that willing gets in the way. You have no narrative. Vipassana is a science. You bring your life to it and then you just drop your life at the door and you come in and you just take experience apart by being a simple observer and <clears throat> trust that the process is going to work regardless of what kind of narrative you're bringing to the process. This is what I call the hot dog theory of meditation. <clears throat> which is you go to a hot dog factory and no matter what comes into the factory, it all comes out shrink-wrapped hot dogs. <laughs> Guaranteed, you know. Any part of the pig, any insect parts get in there and it's hot dogs when they're in. Um, um, meditation doesn't work that way. There's sometimes it really does determine the, what your narrative you're bringing to the practice really does make a difference. Now, it may be wise when you're going on a short-term retreat to think, okay, I'm not going to bring the narrative of my life in here. I'm just going to try to be with the present moment as it is. But when you're thinking of practice as a life lifelong activity, the narrative of your life is very much involved. What's important in your life? What direction you're trying to head your life in, into? And this is when you have to look at your narrative. Okay, what narrative do you have? Um, there are some standard patterns to most human narratives that go like this. You are born, you grow up, get old, you get ill, and you die. Um, there's very little variation of that. Um, the variations are the ones that get really upsetting. You, know, you die before you go get old, or you die before you get ill. But this is a basic pattern. You have to ask yourself, is my practice ready for that aspect of my narrative? How am I going to bring that narrative into consideration when I look at my life? And is a practice of just observing really going to cut it when I realize I have to face age, issues of aging, illness, and death? I have a student who was doing some death meditation practice for a while. Um, <clears throat> and all of a sudden he woke up uh, one morning, had a really bad heart condition. I mean, he felt like he couldn't breathe. He felt extreme amount of chest pain. Got himself admitted to the, uh, the ER in the hospital. And he came back afterwards after being in the ER for a couple of days. And he said he hadn't realized how... Um, distracting death could be. Because <laughs> you're in the ER, people are running around, there are all these machines being put into your body, and you're starting, you know, you're thinking about, in his case, he was thinking about his wife, he was thinking about his kids, he was thinking about his job, and also thinking about, I've got to practice in the midst of all this um, turmoil. And it was, for him, it was a very discouraging, but a kind of an enlightening wake up call that his practice wasn't up to this. His practice wasn't ready to die, or ready for him to die. So you have to look at that very carefully. Is my practice up to dealing with you know, the, the turmoil and distraction of dying? Um, this is where the other concept that I was going to bring in tonight comes in. Um, 
the one that I said that has bad press, and that's the issue of faith. What do you believe in is actually happening in life? What do you believe is actually happening as you die? The word faith, satha, in Pali, can also be translated as conviction, which has a nicer sound. But it's all pretty much the same sort of thing, the things that you don't really know, but where areas we have to actually make assumptions uh, before you're going to function in life. Um, traditionally, the main object of satha in Buddhism, and the one that Buddha himself recommended, is having faith or conviction in the, in the Buddha's awakening. That there was a person who, through his or her in his case, his efforts, but this regard applies to all human beings. There was a person who was not willing to settle for the happiness that is subject to aging, illness, and death. Was trying to find something that was went beyond aging, illness, and death, and through his own efforts was able to find it. Um, this is not this particular story here. This is the narrative that many, you know, that traditionally Buddhists bring into their lives. So that's the other thing I would like to talk about tonight is exactly what impact does thinking about the Buddha's awakening and that particular narrative apply to your narrative about your, your life. Because this is not only an object of conviction in the Buddhist tradition, but it's also part of what's called refuge. The word sarana in Pali is, means both refuge and something to remember. In other words, this is the kind of pattern that you want to bring to bear on your life, something you want to keep in mind all the time. Um, in Thai, this is translated both as sarana, which we'd say with refuge, and tipung, and there's another word, tiraluk, which means something you keep in mind all the time. So what does it mean to keep the Buddha's awakening in mind? You look at his story, and it's essentially a story about issues of aging, illness, and death. His initial motivation to practice was realizing that despite all the pleasures and, and all the, the wealth and other things that he had in life, all the things that he enjoyed were subject to aging, illness, and death. And he himself was subject to aging, illness, and death. And if he tried to find his happiness in things that were also subject to aging, illness, and death, it wasn't going to last very long. It wasn't going to be happiness he could depend on. So he went out looking to find if there was such a happiness. Um, and one of his characteristics was that he wasn't willing to settle for anything less. He studied with some teachers who promised this is the way to true happiness, and he realized that the happiness that they were able to teach him or to, able to show, show him that he was able to develop through following their practices did have its ups and downs. It was not something that was totally free from conditions. So he went off and tried another technique, which was to practice austerities for many years. And after six years of austerities, and you can imagine what, what keeps a person going. And in his case, it was going without food, sometimes forcing himself not to breathe to the point where he had great headaches. Um, he said he went without food to the point where, he's, where he scratched his stomach, he would feel his backbone. And when he'd go out to defecate, he would faint. What keeps a person going in a, in, in a practice like that, if not pride? And then after six years of doing this, he realized, okay, even his pride was not helping him. So he had to abandon his pride and look around to see if there was something else. He finally found the Eightfold Path, starting with the factor of right concentration, which is what we we're hopefully practicing just now. And through the concentration, he was able to gain three kinds of knowledge. And this is what we talk about as the content of his awakening. The first knowledge was remembering past lives. You think you bring narratives to your practice? I mean, he was thinking thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives going way, way back. You think of all the issues that his narratives had. Um, and the essential message of that was that there is a continuity of mental activity that doesn't depend on the body. 
Now, this is one area where it's really hard. You know, there's no proof one way or the other. Scientists keep arguing nowadays, okay, is our consciousness just an epiphenomenon of the fact that we have a body, and when the body goes, that's it? Or is there something, is the body just a tool that consciousness uses? And there's really no, no way that you can prove one way or the other. But this, the Buddha's first knowledge indicated, or at least suggested to him, that there was a kind of mental activity that didn't depend on the body. Second knowledge, of course, the question arose to him was, did this just happen to me or does it happen to other people as well? And so he applied his concentrated mind to that question, and the vision he got was of all beings throughout the cosmos dying and being reborn in the same pattern that he had. Um, one aspect of that pattern was is not ever upward. It's not that you, you, know, you learn one lesson in this life and then you go on to the next stage and the next stage and you finally graduate. There was a lot of ups and downs. But the ups and downs were not random. When he was able to see the larger picture, he realized it was based on choices people had made in terms of things that they thought, things that they said, things that they did. So the message here was that your choices do make a difference, and the choices depend on your knowledge and understanding of things. So here's another aspect, another implication of that second knowledge, was that knowledge can make a difference. Your attitude towards your actions really will determine what you do. That's not determined by forces outside of you. Um, your past actions will place some limitations on the options that are available to you now, but you do have the choice of choosing among those options, which is the most skillful. From that, he, the question was, well, this involves an awful lot of suffering and an awful lot of ups and downs. What's, is there a way out? And so he applied his attention. It was interesting. This is, or I think it was one of the points of the Buddha's real genius. Instead of thinking in those cosmic terms, he focused back on how actually intention was functioning in the present moment. And he saw that, on one hand, the mind can be trained to change its attitudes. It can be trained to change its actions. So the mind is not totally set in its ways. Secondly, by stopping unskillful intentions, and ultimately even stopping intentions in the present moment, he was able to reach a deathless dimension, which lay outside of space and time. What this means is that our, our awareness of the present moment, our experience of the present moment, is not just the result of past actions, but it's also the result of present actions, present intentions. You change those present intentions, you're going to change your experience. If you're able to find a state where the mind is in a state of balance where it doesn't need intention anymore, you go outside of the present moment, you go into, the, into a dimension outside of space and time, which is indescribable because language is... Language is a type of action. It's a type of intention. This is something that goes beyond intentions. The only way the Buddha would describe it is that it was a, f a freedom. It was an unrestricted, uh, excuse me, an awareness unrestricted by anything. And so these particular points are things: one, that there is a mental activity that does not totally depend on the body. There's an activity that can go beyond the death of the body. Secondly, that the choices you make really do make a difference in your life. And then thirdly, you can train the mind so that its choices become so skillful that you can find an ultimate happiness that's not touched by anything in space and time at all. These are the things, this is what it means to have faith in the Buddha's awakening. So it's not just that the story is true, but that there are implications of the story that have impact on the choices you make from day to day. Now, faith here is not one of the reasons we dislike faith so much in the Western at least Western Buddhist circles, is that traditionally in the Judeo-Christian tradition, faith is something as opposed to reason, i.e. you have to have faith because it doesn't make sense. 
And I can tell you, I, I studied me- medieval intellectual history when I was in college, and, and watching them squirm around issues of, you know, was it original sin, makes no sense at all. Somebody else's action back there means that we are now tainted by something, somebody we don't even know. We weren't even responsible for what they did. Somehow we're tainted. And you see the theologians trying to squirm around that one and it just doesn't make any sense. Or why it was that God decided to redeem beings only after, you know, they'd been in existence for, you know, quite a long time. And, and after a while he says, okay, all you guys go to hell, but the ones who are born after this particular person, they get to go to heaven if they believe in him. Um, makes no sense. And so when we're told that we have to have faith in these sort of things, that makes, you know, creates a very negative reaction to faith. In the Buddhist tradition, faith is not opposed to reason. In fact, reason is a kind of faith. You have faith in what makes sense. There's no guarantee, though, that what makes sense is actually going to be true. But there's a particular type of truth that if you put it into practice, gives good results. So the Buddha's test for these objects of faith is not so much an empirical test, because you can't have an empirical test of whether things are deterministic or not, or, or, or fatalistic or not. But if there's a pragmatic test that if you say, okay, my choices make a different, make a difference in my life, you're going to be more careful about your choices. You start seeing that and being more careful about your choices, your life improves. So that's some indication that you know, this makes sense. It's a pragmatic test for the, for these things and not an empirical test. In other words, and also these are things that you actually, actually have to take a stand on. Do my actions make a difference? Do they not? Of course, sometimes we act as if we want them to make a difference, and other times we act as if we don't want them to make a difference, um, in which case we're acting at cross-purposes. Or if we act as if, you know, light, you know the, end of, the end of your lifespan, that's it. There's nothing to worry about after that. Sometimes we act based on that particular idea. And other times we act as if we think, well, there should be something about the, about the mind which carries over, which is not totally dependent on the survival of the body. Rock climbers, for instance. <laughs> they act as if their, you know, their, their awareness is going to survive the end of the body because the body ends pretty quickly when you're a rock climber. Um, but just the fact that, okay, you can go out in a car and there's lots of dangers in going out of a car on the highway. Um, you can go in your bathroom and there's dangers of being in your bathroom. More people die in the bathrooms than anyplace else. So we act sometimes as if, okay, I'm going to survive this even if my body dies, even if I put my body into danger. So our problem is not so much that we, we would never even think of the idea that there is survival beyond death or that, that our actions to make a difference. The problem is that we're inconsistent. And the question is, what would happen to your life if you decided you want to be more consistent in believing, okay, my actions, everything I do, everything I say, everything I think is going to have consequences, important consequences. How would I act if I decided that, okay, I may not just... Things, the, the end of this body is not going into the end. Maybe I have to. It's like being. It's like making investments. If I have to make an investment and worried only about this year, I'll make a certain kind of investment. But if I'm making an investment worried about long-term issues further down the line, I'll make a different kind of investment. So, what the issue of faith or the issue of um, conviction in, in the Buddhist tradition is not so much asking you to believe in things that are unreasonable is to make, ask you to take a stand on something you can't know yet will be proven only as you put it into practice. Um, there are some passages where the Buddha says, you know, if you act on the assumption that okay, there will be survival after death and it, the way you survive is going to be determined by the way you act now, 
then if, even if it turns out that that's not the case, you still haven't lost. Because you've been acting in a skillful way, you've been acting in a, in a, in a way that doesn't create any enemies, in a, in a way that you can be proud of acting. Because what is the Buddhist tradition asking you to do? It's not to base your happiness on being grubby and greedy. It's asking you to base your happiness on being honorable, using your discernment, showing compassion, things that you can be proud about. Now, sometimes this wager is taken as saying, okay, if it doesn't really matter whether there's survival after death or after not, I can, I'm safe in, in assuming that, it's not, that it doesn't happen. That's not what the Buddha is saying. Is that if you assume that there is survival, beyond death, and that it is shaped by your actions, then you're going to be acting in a skillful way, and it's the skillful actions that are going to make, that are going to give the good results. And if you assume that everything you do is important, you're going to put a lot more effort into doing it well. This is what helps to sustain you, even times when it's difficult. You say, I've got to do whatever I'm capable of doing. That's the skillful action right now. So the question is, how much effort and how many sacrifices you have to make if you take that belief that you're know that you going to survive the end of the body. Of course, the, technically speaking, it's not going to be you, but technically speaking, it's not not you either. Um, and the traditional way of looking at this is, okay, are you the same person now as you were when you are four years old? And there's some ways yes, and in some ways no. Um, are you going to be the same person now when you're th when you're you know, 20, 30 years down the line? And in some ways, yes, assuming you, you know, you're still alive. And the answer is some ways, yes, and some ways, no. And it's the same way with this issue of rebirth. Um, as the Buddha said, it's your awareness is that goes from one existence to another is like a fire that's being driven from one house to another. Of course, the, the, they had a, the issue now is when a fire goes, you know, when it skips from one house to another, how is it carried across? And the Buddha says, well, it's carried across by the wind. Of course, we know now it's the oxygen in the air. Because how does awareness go from one existence to another? It's like craving. It's by craving. That's what carries you across. And you know from your craving, as your craving can get, get, can get out of hand, then, you, then you've got a lot of dangers that you've got to work, work, watch out for. Another Im image that's often used, or a simile that's often used, is like going from one dream to another. Now, how responsible are you in your dreams? when you go from one dream to the next. You think about, we talk about people dying in peaceful ways, or quietly in their sleep. Has anyone interviewed anyone who died quietly in his sleep to find out how quiet and easy it was? And how much control did they have over what they were doing? And you have to look at the fact that as long as your, danger, as long as your cravings are not under your control, you've got, it's like having a tiger in your house. The tiger, when there's not enough meat in the house, what's the tiger going to look for? Yeah, it starts looking at you. Um, there's a monastery in Thailand where monks have taken in tigers. Um, and I've always thought, you know, I would never want to go to that monastery. Because <laughs> the tigers are friendly and nice as long as they're well fed, but who knows, you know. <laughs> when, the, when the meat runs out, what's going to happen? So when you look at your mind, you say, gosh, this, this mind of mine, in all of its craziness, is actually going to determine how I go to another lifetime. That makes you really take seriously this craziness in the mind, the cravings that you sort of keep, keep around the house because you think they're okay, but you never know when they're going to turn on you. So that you, you start looking at the issues of your life in a different way. Um, 
So how much can you depend on your own mind? I was talking today with one of the people here. Um, you look at your friends as they get older, and some of them start getting, start getting really reactionary and very conservative. And how can you know that you're not going to start doing that yourself? There's just that much of lack of control over you know as, as you get older and as you get sick. So you have to ask yourself, is there something in here that will not change? In my father's case, he had several older brothers. He was the youngest of six. He saw his older brothers getting very reactionary as they got older, and he swore he did not want that to happen. But it took an element of will on his part, and he was fortunate that he was able to you know, not outlive his more liberal views. But it's not a guarantee for the rest of us that that can happen as well. You see people changing through illness. You see people changing through um, accidents or just the simple process of aging. And you ask yourself, how much can I trust my own mind when my attitudes, when my beliefs, when my practice is very dependent just on the condition of the body? So your refuge here has to be something that goes beyond just you know, what you know about yourself when you're living in comfortable circumstances. How about when things get uncomfortable, things get difficult? Do you have the inner resources to keep yourself going in ways that you can trust? So this, this is where you look at your practice and you begin to realize that the idea that you may have an already awakened nature may sound nice, you know, that you can just kind of fall back on the idea that you know, you, if you get the mind quiet, you can trust what comes up in the quiet mind. But it's not, is it really true? Can you depend on your mind in all cases, in all situations? Have you gotten to that point yet? So these are some of the things you keep in mind as you apply this the, the aspect of right effort to your practice, the practice of ardency. How ardent do you need to be? Exactly what kind of ardency do you need to apply to the practice? What narratives are you bringing to the practice? So, um, one of the ways of dealing with, traditional ways of dealing with sort of the fallow areas in the practice is to remind yourself that no one meditation technique can carry you through everything. Traditionally, they have you reflect on the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or reflect on your own generosity, reflect on your own virtue. Um, reflecting on your generosity and virtue, that's to give you confidence in yourself. You know, you do have some good in your background that you want to maintain. Reflecting on the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sanghas, thinking about the people who've gone before us, the difficulties they went through. They were able to do it, though. And they, and they were human beings, we can do it as well. Reflecting on the Dharma is a reminder that, that these what we're ultimately taking refuge in is qualities in the mind. It's not somebody out there who's going to come down and save us. It's not that the Buddha's going to do that. But simply that he gained his attainment of the deathless through developing qualities of mindful, mindfulness, discernment, ardency, alertness, concentration. These are the things that we have to take refuge in. So when you look at your concentration, is it the kind of concentration you can take refuge in yet? Is it reliable yet? If it's not, then you've got work that you've got to do. Then there's the recollection of death, which is on for days when you're getting really lazy. Um, the Buddha says, recollect on the fact when the, when the sun rises in the morning, this might be your last sunrise. Are you ready to go? And if you're not ready to go, okay, what work needs to be done in your mind? There's that kind of urgency. You've got to work on this every day. You can't take days off. For me, this was one of the, the hardest parts to adjust to in being a monk, was there are no Fridays and Saturday nights off. But that's an important lesson right there, is that you know, people don't just die on weekdays. <laughs> Things don't get difficult only when you're meditating. Things get difficult can, and can get difficult at any time. 
So you have to look at the ways that you're wasting your time right now pursuing lesser happinesses when they're really serious issues that you have to pursue. The Buddha said the sign of a wise person or at least an enlightened person is when you realize that there is a greater happiness that comes from abandoning lesser happiness. You have to be willing to abandon that lesser happiness in order to attain the greater one. Now, how many times do you keep that thought in mind as you go through the day? As I said earlier, there are some times when we like the idea that our actions have consequences, and other times we act as if we, our actions have no consequences at all, and we don't want to be told, we don't want to hear about this. Can, what happens when you get more consistent in saying, all my actions have consequences, my mind contains these dangers, what am I going to do to protect myself from them? So this is how the question of ardency gets tied in with issues of faith and conviction. What kind of narrative are you bringing to your practice? What kind of story do you tell yourself about your life? What kind of story are you creating through your choices throughout the day? Could you create a more skillful, bring a better narrative to the practice? Because one of the things you'll find is that you create a better narrative through the course of the day in the way things that you actually do and say and think. When the time comes to sit down and meditate, it's a lot easier for the mind to settle down. The two aspects of the practice of that are intimately connected. If you've got a bad narrative, it's a very sticky narrative to sort of shake off and just get down into the present moment. So simply the practice of trying to be alert and be observant in the present moment requires that you make skillful choices throughout the day. When you find that you um, have this attitude towards your practice, if you can bring this kind of narrative that it is possible to find true happiness, um, the, Buddhist, the story of the Buddha's life is really a challenge. He's saying you've got the potential to put an end to suffering. Are you taking, taking advantage of that potential or are you just letting it fritter away? Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on that one. But I would like you to think about it. This is traditionally what... Um, as I said, refuge is all about. The word sadhana is not just taking refuge, but it's also something you keep in mind all the time. To have this perspective on your actions as you go through the day. To make, your, make sure that you do the best you can, make the most skillful choices you can. Some people say that the teaching on birth, rebirth is simply a, a consoling teaching for people who need that kind of consolation. But you know, rebirth has a lot of dangers. The consolation is that even if you don't get to enlightenment this time, you get another chance. Um, there's a common image that, you know, that they say that all, all rivers flow to the ocean. Well, there are rivers that flow into the Great Basin. However, the rivers that flow into the Great Basin, the water evaporates, and it falls, may fall down someplace else. You get into a different river basin, you may get out to the ocean the next time around. Um, so those are my thoughts on the topic tonight. I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are. Uh, could you please explain uh, the, the difference between making sense um, uh, if, if God things and Christianity things that you referred to do not make sense? Mm -hmm. In what respect does uh, conviction and belief in ongoing lives make sense? Make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, well, it's one of those issues that's not, not irrational. It can't be proven. But it's not irrational, or it doesn't make it doesn't have logical inconsistency. Now I'm having trouble with the word logic. Okay, okay. Oh. Say, so given the definition of the issue of original sin, if um, 
sin is based on, a, on an intention, and yet there's a sin that's carried on from one person to another to, to a person who never had that intention, then you've got a logical inconsistency. Unless all of our spirits, regardless of time, are are one, mm-hmm. and you know we're we're part of the the great spirit, and mm-hmm. and so we need to take responsibility as one great spirit in acts of the past. I mean, you know, you can logically and belief-wise go on and on. I think I just have trouble with that concept. Okay. Well, then, then the question is, if we're all one spirit, then if, how can we be responsible for what other people do when we weren't around? Whereas the question of, of rebirth, okay, there's one person, the, the, the movement of the mind goes on to another body. It's not so much that you're going there. It's that this body, like going from one dream to another. Again, if the the scientists are, those scientists who believe that mind is a part of the physical is the only mind, if they're right, then this doesn't make sense. It's something that's that's an assumption that's made. It's nothing that's proven one way or another. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and I think I heard you say that it's not proven that there are many lives. Right, it's it's not taken as proof. Yeah, it all amounts to about the same thing as is the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. Well, the assumption here is that if you, the consequences of your actions go beyond just this lifetime. If you act on that assumption, you're going to start behaving a lot more carefully. That's that's as far as the proof goes. Question in the back. So if what is what? Who is this thing that gets reborn? If the whole thing about the path is not me, not mine, not I, what is this thing that is my next life or my past or my past life? It doesn't make sense. Okay. Well, there's what it says. The process is the, the problem. Is there's a the process causes suffering? If you look at it in terms of a process, you can put it to an, an end to it. If you look for the thing behind it, you can't put an end to it. This is, you know, the purpose of his teachings is to make you understand suffering and the end of suffering. And the way to do that is to look at the process. You can see the process of craving in your mind right now. You can't see the thing. And any, any attempt to pursue what that thing might be gets you away from, the, from dealing with the actual process. Whereas if dealing with the process, as he said, it's, it's craving. That goes that carries things through. And when it goes away, I'm away. I'm void, not there. Okay. Well, then, then the question of your definition of he has you look at your definition of yourself as a kind of karma. That's a kind of action that's actually getting in the way of the end of suffering. But again, he doesn't say that you are your karma. Your karma creates a sense of self. When you get beyond the sense of self. If you, know, if you say that you are just this body, then, then okay, when the end of this body, that's the end. Or if you say that you are this soul that goes, to, which he doesn't say, that you are this soul that goes from one life to another, and at the end of at the end of the end of the samsaric process, and that gets destroyed, that would be kind of an annihilation, which he doesn't say. As my teacher once said, once you find ultimate happiness, you don't care who's there to experience it. Yes. Uh, you said um, the issue was more uh, pragmatic than it was experiential as far as determining what you have confidence in or well, faith in. You, in. In terms of the proof, it's not an empirical proof. I mean, you will eventually experience these things in your life. Well, a good teacher that I knew said 
the difference between belief and faith is that faith is belief based on good evidence. And I always liked that. That always made some sense. If I saw a consequence that I could identify, I could have faith that if I went and did that, that might happen. And somehow, pragmatism and experiential seem like similar things to me. So how, what is your distinction between that? I'm talking about two different kinds of proof. There's a pragmatic proof and, a, and what's called an empirical proof. Okay. What's empirical it? proof is when you can see beforehand, okay, this is in, in every case, this is what happens. When, this, when this particular cause is put into the system, these will always be the things that come out. A pragmatic proof is when these are areas that I can't prove it one way or the other, but if I take this as an assumption, I find myself acting in better ways, and then the experience comes along that tends to confirm that. Okay, that sounds somewhat experiential to me. It's 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 one you can't prove. <laughs> it's not it's not proven before you put your life on the line. Right. That's the pragmatic proof. The, the right. right. empirical proof is okay. You can see beforehand all the data, and you don't have to make any commitment. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. That deals with truths of the observer, as opposed to truths of the will. I guess I, I'm, a, I'm more of a scientist. I, I don't see the truths of the will. I see the truths of the experiment. Okay, the, the truth of becoming a scientist, you had to do certain things. You had to want to be a scientist. Yep. And that was a truth that came about as because of your will. You will to do the science well. If you hadn't willed that, it wouldn't have happened. That's right. I'd still... Well, thank you. <laughs> I don't quite... I'm, not getting it, so thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Question over here. Well, now that we're doing like metaphysics greatest hits here, um, I'm just curious if you can summarize the teaching on the devas and the role that that may that teaching may play in our practice. There's a cosmology that there are beings that are have a lot less suffering than we do. You might compare them to, in Thailand, they would talk about California surfers as kind of being kind of like Davids. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing is, that it's like, like having friends in a different realm, or you know, potential just neutral people in a different realm. And you can become one of them, and they can become one of us. But they don't put an end to their suffering. And they can't put an end to our suffering for us. So it, I've always liked the attitude in, in the Buddhist text about Davis is that, okay, they're there, you're polite to them, but you don't you know, look to them for guidance. Can, can they help us? or? Well, it depends on the deva. It's like, can, can people help you? Some people can help you, some people can't. But ultimately, in, in terms of putting an end to suffering, nobody can do it for you. I mean, if you have some sort of karmic connection with somebody else, they can help you. If there's no karmic connection, there's no there's no means there. And it's the same with these devas. Some of them you may have karmic connections with, but they still might be limited in terms of their understanding. You can't depend on them to teach you. There's one story where this deva sees this monk. He's been out bathing in the river, and he comes out of the river, and he's wearing only his underrobe, and she gets kind of smitten by him. So she comes down and says, hey, um, why, why waste your time as a monk? Well, you can become a monk later when you get older. 
<laughs> and so in her case, this is, this is a deva who's mis- trying to mislead the monk. Um, there's another story about a day where a monk goes down, he's b- bathing in, the, in a pond, and he sees this lotus and he sniffs the lotus. And the deva appears to him and says, you just stole the scent of that lotus. He says, I wasn't stealing, I was just a normal thing. She says, look, if you're really serious about the practice, you have to see every minor infraction, as, as, as I said, as big as a cloud, i.e. huge. And he says, gee, well, thank you for pointing that out to me. And um, if you see me making any mistakes from now on, please point more out to me. And she says, I'm not your servant. <laughs> so you get all kinds of Davis, just like you get all kinds of people. <laughs> so, question over here. How would the desire and the cycle of reincarnation then relate to the bodhisattvas? Bodhisattva? Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that choosing to reincarnate... Mm-hmm. In order to be of service, but still having that desire to be on earth. Okay, well, that still counts as a kind of craving. Yes, but in a sense, then it's not the type of craving that you really need to release yourself of. Like you, in your talk, you were de- describing different types of desire, and some are beneficial and serving of a higher good or a higher purpose, and other desires are things that we should release ourselves from, but the desire to continue as a soul in order to be of service because the compassion for beings on the earth doesn't seem like a desire that needs to be released of their higher beings and beings of great beauty, are they not? Well, in, in, in a certain way, but then as long as there's that desire, it shows that there's still some element of ignorance operating. When you find that, when you realize, okay, the, the best thing you can do for someone else is show them that there's a way to total freedom by taking total freedom yourself. That's an even higher gift. I guess it goes back to a cosmology of like of where the universe is going or why it was created. If there is no end, it's almost because there is a desire to continue and evolve. And that's one thing that challenges, I guess, me and my practice is saying, well, how much do, does one really want to remove oneself from something that you are intrinsically part of? You know? Well, it, from the early teachings, samsara is not a place, it's an activity. That we, the, the, the going on, the going on is something that we do and in the course of doing it, we're not the only ones who suffer, that we bring suffering to other people. Even when we're being compassionate in some ways, just of the fact of our existence is placing a burden on other beings in other ways. And so it's not so much like leaving a place that we're in, intrinsically and tied up in. It's more like a, an activity that is not entirely skillful, even when we're being compassionate. And so the best way to show compassion to other beings is to stop that activity. Show them it is possible for them too, through their own efforts, to put a stop to that activity that's involving some suffering, whether it's subtle suffering or gross. Mm-hmm. Question in the back. Yeah, I had a question about free will, mm-hmm. and you talked about choices and making the correct choices, and how you come about to start initially making those choices if 
I mean, going back to the first question about original sin, mm-hmm. how most of us are born into this kind of society that generates mental insanity mm-hmm. <laughs> and how we're, you know, you take that initial step away from that mm-hmm. and start making those choices and when that actually becomes a choice and if you can be born into having free will, if that's just a part of being a human being or if that's something that you, like you said, you have to take for yourself. Okay, we, we come with a mixed history. We've got unskillful choices. We had skillful choices in the past. And what we hear is in America, that even though it may be pretty insane, it's not totally bad. There are some good, good things that can happen in a society. So we've got a society where we have these potentials or these opportunities to go in one way or another. Um, the more we exercise our choice of doing what's skillful, the, the more freedom we begin to find. And we have the potential for freedom, but we don't fully exercise it. Many times we just go on automatic pilot. You know, and, and the, the Thai firm is, you know, wherever your karma has taken you, you just kind of keep following along, um, which is the way most people tend to live. Good things come and then they react in a good way. Bad things come and they react in a bad way. Back and forth. Whereas if you start making the choice, okay, I'm going to try to see what opportunities are available to me at the moment and always try to do the most skillful thing, you begin to find your range of freedom begins to expand. But that initial choice, I mean, for me personally, to start thinking about my actions came from started from an outside source that I, or um, a situation that I opened up to, but it started, or it seemed to me to start from something other than an actual choice that I made. Well, usually it comes from the point where you're suffering so much, you say, I've got to do something about this. And so it helps to have, I mean, they say there are two, two aspects that help in the practice. One is your own appropriate attention, seeing, okay, my choices are going to have to make the difference here. And um, the help of an outside person who points this out to you. Having a, what they call an admirable friend. And the two of those are considered to be the most fruitful factors for getting on the path and staying on the path. We have to assume that we've all come with a mixed bag. We've got some skillful karma in the past. We've got some unskillful karma in the past. There comes a the point that we say, I've, I've been suffering enough. I want, I've got to do something about this. Thank you. So speaking of choices and, and ending activities, okay. it's, it's time, to end. time okay. for us to uh, end the formal session. And would you be willing to spend a few minutes answering other people's questions? Sure. Great. Thank you. Thank you.